Well, my topic for this morning, as I have announced um, already in my weekly email and in other places, is the topic of abortion. A very controversial topic in our culture. To put it simplistically, there is one side of the controversy who says the unborn have the right to life. The other saying that a woman has the right to choose. But they go beyond that and say the first group that we ought to have laws. Laws that protect the life of the unborn, whereas the second group says that we ought to have laws that protect the choice of women. A hot controversy in our culture, as you're full aware. But let me ask you, should this topic be a controversy in the church? Should it be a controversial topic for Christians? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, there should be no controversy whatsoever about the immorality of elective abortion. Believers should not have abortions. They should not encourage others to have them. And they certainly should not be involved in performing them. But there is a controversy among believers when we start talking about what we ought to do about abortion as we see it so pervasive in our culture. What is our role as individual believers? And more controversial, what should the role of the government be? Well, as believers, when we think about our role, very simply, we should seek to promote life and to protect life. We've already heard of one way, actually a number of ways, to get involved through Scott's report and his appeal. Ministries like Choices Medical Clinic are helping women to choose life for their children and even to come to have eternal life through Christ. Embrace is a ministry that also seeks to help women and to lead them to Christ. And many people in this church are involved in Choices Medical Clinic or some are involved with Embrace. Many others in this church are involved in different kinds of ministries. Ministries that help make it feasible for women to choose life for their children. There are those of you who have taken women in, quite literally. Single mothers, pregnant women, who are anticipating having a child. Others have helped them with resources or even helped them in raising their children. Many in this church have been involved in foster care and adoption. Very good and necessary work if we are really going to promote and to protect life in our society. May it continue. May it increase. And yet the question remains, what role should our government play in promoting life and protecting life? This is a very relevant discussion for us 
in Kansas. In August, we'll have the opportunity to vote on an amendment to our state constitution. It's called the Value Them Both Amendment. In 2019, a Supreme Court uh, decision, a Kansas Supreme Court decision, basically said that there's nearly unlimited right to abortion in our state. According to the Value Them Both group, what this means is that this decision may make it difficult to carry out current laws that restrict abortion in Kansas or to create future laws. This is where the Value Them Both amendment comes in. This is what it says. Because Kansans value both women and children, the Constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortion and does not create right to abortion. To the extent permitted by the Constitution of the United States, the people, through their elective state representatives and state senators, may pass laws regarding abortion, including, but not limited to, laws that account for circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or circumstances of necessity to save the life of the mother. Let me be clear that this amendment does not put a ban on abortion but it does allow current laws to be enforced and our legislators to create future laws that could restrict abortion. That's all I'm going to say about the Value Them Both Amendment. I simply want to ask the question this morning, what does the Bible say about the government's role in making laws to restrict Abortion. That's what I want to talk about today. We're going to look at a very foundational passage on this topic or related to this topic. It's Genesis 9. Genesis 9. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Genesis 9. In this chapter, we find the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. I'll refer to it often throughout this sermon as the Noahic Covenant. A covenant that is really for all humanity, all people, even today. It wasn't a covenant simply for the nation of Israel. It's for us too. It's a covenant that spells out the way that we should live. And it is foundational in giving parameters for the way that governments should function. More to the point, I believe that it speaks directly to the way that we should think about abortion legislation. But before we get to the covenant that God made with Noah, I need to back up a bit and set the stage. I want to actually start at the beginning in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 27-28, we read that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Humanity was created in the image of God and they were called to be fruitful and multiply. They were called 
to fill the earth with other image bearers so that God's image, His glory, could be seen in all of creation. That's why we were created. To glorify God as we bear His image. But Adam and Eve sinned. Paradise was lost, as Milton said, in the fall. Adam and Eve were then banished from the Garden of Eden. They were judged. But in the moment of that judgment, God also spoke a promise. He promised that from the offspring, the children of Adam and Eve, there would one day come a Savior to save us from our sins and the effect of sins. But that promise of this coming seed, offspring of Eve, took a while to come to fruition. And in the meantime, things went from bad to worse. Following the fall in Genesis 3, sin continued to increase. The first recorded sin in Genesis 4 is guess what? Murder. Cain kills his own brother, Abel. By the time we get to Genesis 6, things are really bad. We read in Genesis 6-5 that the Lord saw, listen to this description, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what was God to do in the face of such heinous sin? God brought judgment upon the earth. In Genesis 6-7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And that's what God did. He sent a flood on the earth that wiped out all of humanity, all of the animals, except for Noah and his family. God spared Noah and his family in the ark. And when Noah and his family emerged from the ark, God made a covenant with Noah. A covenant that gives instruction on how to live life on this side of the fall. It teaches us how to live until God brings salvation through the offspring of the woman. And like I said, this covenant is foundational. The basis for our lives today and even the basis for government today. So with that lengthy introduction, let us read about the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 9. Would you please stand? I will be reading verses 1 to 17. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. 
they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between Me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set My bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between Me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Covenants in the Bible are always, well, at least these kinds of covenants, the major ones, they are initiated by God and they spell out the way to live life under God's authority. Under the King. The King of all of the universe. The covenant with Noah governs the kingdom of creation. Not the kingdom of Israel necessarily, but the kingdom of creation. And all covenants in the Bible contain commands for man as well as promises from God. They contain other things, but those two basic things are there. Commands for man, promises from God. In the Noahic covenant, there are a number of commands given to man and one major promise given by God. Today, I'm going to focus on two of the commands given to man and that one promise given by God. So the sermon will come in three parts. Let's begin with the first command. This command teaches us that the covenant calls for the multiplication of human life. The Noahic covenant, it calls for the multiplication of human life. In verse 1, we see that God 
bless Noah and his sons. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1 already. And then said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. A reiteration of what we had read in Genesis 1. This command is repeated in verse 7, which brackets the set of commands given to man. It says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. My sermon title is Life for Life. In each section of this covenant, we see some version of this title, Life for Life at work. Here, we see that God spared Noah's life from the flood for a purpose. He spared Noah's life and the life of his family and then called them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Life for life. Noah's life spared so that human life could multiply. Although the image of God was marred in the fall, although man is now living outside of the Garden of Eden, the image of God in man has not been erased. Life is still good. All humanity, all human life is created in the image of God. And all human life is therefore imbued with dignity. Therefore, we should promote human life. And one way that we do this is through cultivating healthy families. Because it's in the context of families that life is multiplied. So it's not just a call to multiply human life. That is true. But a healthy life. A flourishing kind of life. This is true throughout all human history. This call applies to all human history. But one reason it was specifically important during Noah's day was because of that promise that God had made to Adam and Eve. That through their offspring, a Savior would come. Now, that Savior will come through the offspring of Noah. So it's important that He gets to work. In multiplying human life. The second command in the covenant is designed to make the first command possible. They go together. This is what we learn. The covenant calls for retribution for those who take human life wrongfully. So the first command has to do with multiplication. The second with retribution and this is how they are related. If we're going to promote life, we have to also protect life. The context in which we are called to be fruitful and multiply has changed from what it was in the garden to what it is following Noah. Remember the first sin after Genesis 3 and Genesis 4? It's murder. Murder is a real threat to multiplication. Therefore, God gives man the right and the responsibility to punish those who take the life of an image bearer wrongfully. 
Look at verses 5 to 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning. For the life of man, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. As we'll see later, this law of retribution continues, not only in the Noahic covenant, it is pervasive in the Mosaic covenant. And when we get to the New Testament, we see that it applies to governments today as well. Human life is valuable because all humanity is created in the image of God. Therefore, that life must be promoted. And in order for it to be promoted, it must also be protected. These are the two commands that are given to all of humanity in the Noahic Covenant, and they provide the solid foundation for the role of government. Government, to put it in as simple a terms as I know how, is called to fulfill the commands of the Noahic Covenant. To promote life. Healthy life. And to protect human life. Did you guys know that government is not something that man came up with? It is instituted by God for a purpose and so therefore it has a responsibility to carry out the purposes of which God has established to promote life and to protect life. Listen to Romans 13 which speaks of the role of government and see if you hear resonance with what we've already seen in the Noahic Covenant. First of all, in verse 1, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. In verses 3 to 4, he goes on to say, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive His approval. For He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for He does not bear the sword in vain. For He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I see many points of connection with Genesis 9. The government approves what is good. They promote healthy life. And they're called to punish what is bad. That is what is meant when it says they wield the sword. They have the authority to punish, especially in cases where a person has been intentionally and wrongfully murdered. Or someone has taken human life. In other words, the government has the responsibility to put laws into place and to enforce those laws that promote life 
and protect life. That's the basic teaching of this covenant. Let me ask a question. Does the life that we have seen in Genesis 9, the life that we are called to promote and to protect, apply to the life of the unborn? Are human embryos, are fetuses in the womb, human persons created in the image of God and therefore in need of protection? Or are they just a cluster of cells? Something that doesn't attain personhood until later stages of development. Is this simply an issue for science to answer? Or does the Bible speak to this issue? I believe it speaks pretty clearly. I want to walk you through a few passages to show you. This is where I left the most on the cutting room floor in my study this week. Psalm 139 is a popular one, so I'll begin there. It teaches that life begins in the womb. It says, For you, speaking of God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. A reference to the creation of Adam in that line, speaking of what happens in a womb. Each human being is a carefully crafted masterpiece of God. David makes this point as he is speaking as an adult about his life, his life that is under attack. And to find comfort in the attack that he is experiencing in his life, he recites the truth that God has been with him since the beginning and He will be with him till the end. And when was the beginning for David? Was it at birth? No, it was in the womb. You see, in the Bible, we could multiply verses. There is continuity between life in the womb and life after birth. We can take this a step further and be very clear and say that the Bible teaches that life begins at conception. Not just at some point along the way in the womb. From the moment of fertilization. In Genesis 4, this is really simple. Easy to miss. Repeated a hundred times in the Scriptures probably. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Very simple observation. A connection between conception and bearing her birth. See the same thing with Jesus. When the angel speaks to Joseph in Matthew 1, 20-21, he says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, she will bear a son. 
you shall call His name Jesus. Do you see? A connection. Not only between life in the womb and life after birth, but a connection between conception and birth. Clearly, as Elizabeth states in Luke chapter 1, Jesus in the womb, probably no more than seven days old, she calls Him my Lord. I would say that that constitutes Him as a person. And as human persons, including the unborn, they should be protected by the law. Exodus 21 is a section within the book of Exodus that spells out case law for Israel. In that chapter, there is a case that makes my point. It presents a case where two men are fighting with one another. They hit a pregnant woman, cause her baby to miscarry. What is the penalty in this case? Capital punishment. Life for life. In the Mosaic Law, the law of retribution in the Noahic Covenant applies to life even in the womb. The point I'm trying to make is simple. If I can summarize. Life is valuable. Therefore, it is to be multiplied, to be promoted, to be protected, protected even by the law. The life of those in the womb as well as the life of those outside of the womb. From conception to birth, and beyond. It is foundational. It is found in the Noahic Covenant, which spells out the way we are to live life on this side of the fall, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity, for all of time, even for us today. It should even apply to the laws in our state and in our nation. It should. But does it? One pastor put a sharp point on all of this. He says that human societies, speaking of the Noahic Covenant, have two related jobs. He puts it a little different than I did. To preserve life and to preserve the family. Because the call to multiply takes place in the context of the family. Any society, he goes on to say, or government that corrupts the family or murders the innocent is in direct treason and disobedience to the king of the universe. They are abusing the sword entrusted to them by turning it on the innocent rather than the guilty. This is what we are doing in our country. The promotion of abortion the erosion and destruction of marriage through rampant divorce, homosexual unions, sexual perversion are high treachery and bold-faced rejection of the most basic duties of all mankind according to the Noahic Covenant. 
So what should we do? Well, we'll get to that. But before we do, we need to look at this last section in the covenant. It really matters for the way that we think about our life in this world, on this side of the fall, as we await the coming of our King. This is the part of the covenant where God makes a promise. A promise to never destroy the earth by flood again. He may bring judgment on certain people, and yes, even on certain nations for their sin, but He will never again bring judgment on the whole earth until the final judgment. But what is the reason for this promise? To what end does God make this promise? Why does God promise to preserve life on earth? And it leads us into this last point. We've seen this life-for-life concept throughout the Noahic covenant. Noah's life spared for the sake of promoting and multiplying life on the earth. The government given the ability to apply the life-for-life retribution principle in order to protect life. Now we see that the reason God promises to preserve life on earth is to set the stage for salvation and eternal life. To set the stage for salvation and eternal life. Remember, God promised salvation through the offspring of Eve. God's promise of preserving creation here in the Noahic Covenant is intended to build a platform for the promise to send the Savior. You see, if there were no people, there would be no Savior. And there would be no people to save. Following the Noahic covenant, God made a covenant with Abraham. This is an important piece of context. In the Abrahamic covenant, God promised that through Abraham's offspring, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is the point I'm trying to make. The promise in Genesis 9 creates a platform for Genesis 12 to take place. The Noahic covenant makes it possible for Jesus to come and to bring the new covenant in His blood. And now that He has come, the Noahic covenant, thank God, remains in force. God's judgment is still delayed so that the nations can come to hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. So they can move from death to life. Not just physical life, but everlasting life. Some believers would be saying yes and amen to this. This is what the church should care about. We should care about salvation. Government doesn't really matter. All that really matters is salvation. And on the one hand, in terms of priority, in terms of scale, they are exactly right. But on the other hand, this is very short-sighted. There seems to be in the Noahic Covenant and in another passage I'm going to draw your attention to in the New Testament, a connection 
between a well-ordered society where healthy life is promoted, where human life is protected, a connection between a well-ordered society and the Gospel going forth to the nations. Sure, the Gospel will go forth no matter how bad society gets. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But when we live in a relatively peaceful and well-ordered society, I think the Bible teaches us that it creates a platform for the Gospel to go forth. We see this connection in 1 Timothy 2. Verses 1-3, to Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Paul's basically saying that we need to pray that our government will govern in such a way to promote life and to protect life. It is good. It is the fulfillment of the Noahic covenant. It's good in and of itself. We should seek the good of the city, as we learn in Jeremiah 29. So we should pray that our governing officials would also seek the good of the city. It's a good in and of itself, but it's a good for another reason as well. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 4. God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A connection between a well-governed society and the Gospel going forth so that people can be saved from every tribe, tongue, nation to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we should care about the Gospel primarily. But because we care about the Gospel, we should also care about a well-ordered, well-governed society. A government that promotes and protects life is a platform for the Gospel that announces eternal life. A government that protects human life and gives those human lives a chance to hear the good news. And friends, in a world where sin is still rampant, where the unborn are legally murdered, where we call that which is evil good, and that which is good evil, what we need more than anything is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. As Scott talked about, one life at a time, people coming to know the forgiveness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. To be saved. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what we need. For some of you here today, this topic of abortion... It's not simply a theological matter. It's not simply a political matter. 
It's a very personal matter. Do you know somebody close to you who's had an abortion? I do. Have you encouraged somebody to have an abortion? Or maybe you're here this morning and you yourself have had an abortion. And so maybe this sermon is hurting right now. Maybe it's even offending you right now. I just want to be really clear. I do not want to leave you hurt or offended. I want to leave you helped. There's really good news for you in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We all deserve God's judgment. His eternal judgment. But thankfully, the Noahic covenant is still in place and judgment has not yet come on this earth. There is still time. And thankfully, God sent His one and only Son to die on the cross for our sins. If you believe the Gospel that Jesus died for your sins, if you repent of your sins and surrender your life to Jesus, you will be saved. It's a promise. You will be forgiven of all of your sins. God hates sin, but God loves sinners. That's why He sent His Son to die for them. But He doesn't leave it at forgiveness. He then brings you as an adopted child into the family of God. And when the floods of judgment come, and they will come, you'll be safe. Not in an ark. Not in a boat. Safe in Christ. So in a world where sin is rampant, the first and the most important thing we are to do is to believe the Gospel. I invite you to do so today. And to proclaim the Gospel to a lost, hurting, and dying world. But because there is a connection between the spread of the Gospel and a society that lives according to to the Noahic covenant, there's more that we need to do. And so can I just briefly offer three final applications for us today? We should pray. We should pray for our government to make and to enforce laws that preserve life and preserve the family. And I believe if we are to live godly lives, we should also pray for the protection of our religious freedoms in this country. Second, we should engage in government to promote life, to protect life where we have the ability. God may be calling some of you into law. Some of you are already in that. Maybe into politics. But all of us, at a minimum, have the privilege and the opportunity to vote. And we should 
vote. Third, we should trust in God, not in government. For some of you, you've been amening me this whole sermon, and this is the part where you need to listen up. We need to trust in God, not in government. We should care about government, but we should not trust in it. We should remember that God is the only one who will ultimately bring about righteousness and justice in our world. What is our only hope in life and death? Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Let us pray. Father, we know that You love life more than we because You sent Your one and only Son to give His life as a ransom for many. Oh, the cost that You paid to secure our salvation. May it help us to remember how valuable life is and motivate us to seek, to promote, to protect human life, but to proclaim the Gospel, the only thing that can bring about forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.